Let's pray. Lord, we want to affirm and say amen to everything that we've just sung, that all glory belongs to you, all the glory of your creation, all the glory in your work of redemption in which you have taken sinners like us and cleansed us made us alive, made us new, given us a new identity in Christ, given us a new purpose, given us a new destination of eternity with you. We give you all the glory. You, Jesus, are our salvation. And even as we reflected already earlier this morning as Michael was teaching us from Galatians, there's nothing that we contribute to this. We recognize that you have done it all. It's not by our keeping of the law. It's not by even the fervency of our emotions It's by your work alone in your death, your burial, and your resurrection. That is where we find hope and life and peace and salvation. So God, as we turn our attention to you this morning, the author of our salvation, we ask that you'd continue your work of changing us, of teaching us, forming us, maturing us, sink our roots this morning, Lord, deeper into the truth of your word so that we might grow and bring you glory with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the very young children can be dismissed, those of you who go downstairs for our time for a children's church, and I'd like to invite the rest of you to turn this morning to Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we've got several in the back. You can just raise your hand real quick, and somebody in the back, maybe Jackson or someone, can grab one of those Bibles and slip it into your hands. So just raise your hand real quick if you'd like a copy of the scriptures. We'd love for you to follow along, and we'd love for you to take that home with you as well. Jonah chapter 1. Before we jump into Jonah, uh, many of you are familiar with the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, perhaps the most famous passage in that book, holds up for us a whole list of examples, examples of godly believers in ages past, people like Noah, people like Moses, people like Abraham before him, and many other, and all of the people listed in Hebrews 11 are powerful models of faith. Powerful examples of obedience, the kind of faith and obedience that greatly pleases God, and they're held up as role models for us to inspire imitation. But you know who's definitely not in that list in Hebrews chapter 11? This guy, Jonah. Jonah is not an example of faith. In fact, he's the opposite. He's an example of what not to do. Jonah is no role model for us. But that's part of the beauty of this story. Because if you and I are honest, we can see a little bit of ourselves in Jonah and a little bit of Jonah in ourselves. We see Jonah in our own responses to God. We see ourselves reflected in his attitudes, in the lack of obedience. And as such, the book of Jonah does something that's helpful, something you and I need. It exposes a need for grace in our hearts. And the good news is that the story of Jonah doesn't just show us our failures, our sinful tendencies. It doesn't just expose our need for grace. Jonah also displays for us the faithful mercy and power of Jonah's God, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a sovereign, gracious Savior, a God whose will cannot be thwarted, a God whose purposes to save whom he will save will finally be accomplished. God always gets his man. God always gets his city. God always gets his church, whatever he sets his heart to do. So today we're going to dive into this story. We're going to take take in the first scene here in chapter 1 and make some important observations about God, also about Jonah, and the nature of disobedience. 
So let's start together. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. If you're taking notes this morning, there's three sections to the story. And it's kind of hard to make an outline for a story, but the three sections begin with this, the prophet who runs, and then we'll see the God who responds, and then finally the sailors who revere God. That's sort of, if you're an outline person, the outline for this morning. But the first part here focuses on Jonah, the prophet who runs away. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 gives us the command of God to Jonah. It begins with the familiar formula. The word of the Lord, in verse 1, came to Jonah. This exact formula appears in the Old Testament about a hundred times as God speaks through his prophets to guide and direct his people. So if you've been reading the Old Testament, if you perhaps were one of the original recipients of this book and you were familiar with Israel's history, this is not unsurprising to you. The word of the Lord came to one of his servants, to his prophet, giving him instructions of what to say and what to do. And for Jonah to receive such revelation was a great privilege. This man, the son of Amittai, who we find in 2 Kings, is from a little town in Galilee called Gath-Heper. There's your Bible trivia point for this morning, Gath-Heper. This man, Jonah, was chosen to be God's spokesman. Not just anyone received the word of the Lord. But Jonah was called to not just receive it, but to then go and proclaim it. And to receive this message, it brought a great responsibility. Jonah is accountable to do something with this revelation he's received. It's not the first time Jonah's been commissioned by God to speak. In 2 Kings 14, as we mentioned last week, we were told that Jonah had prophesied previously during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel, the the northern ten tribes. And he had been given the task of announcing to the king and to the nation that their shrinking borders were going to be restored and that their former prosperity was going to be regained. And his prophecy had come true, as God's word always does. That was a great time in Jonah's life. That's a privilege to get to be the bearer of good news and to see the things that you said come true. So that's something Jonah had had the privilege of doing before. And now God has another job for him, a new message to share. The command has three parts. God says, arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. So arise, go, and call out. Arise and go gives it a sense of urgency. He doesn't just say go and, and prophesy. He says, arise, get up. Whatever you're doing right now, set it aside because this is what you must do and you must do it immediately. And to call out, this, this commission he's been given means to proclaim. He's called to go preach, to declare publicly and with authority the word of God to these people. But notice, instead of preaching to God's covenant people, his countrymen, the nation of Israel, as he was accustomed to doing, Jonah is to go. And he's to go about 500 miles away to a place called Nineveh. Nineveh was to the north and east of Israel, near modern-day Mosul in Iraq. It was the capital city of the Assyrian nation. The Assyrians were a growing power in the region, and they had plans to rule the world. They wanted to take over everyone and everything and establish an empire, and they 
intended to do it through violence and conquest. So when you think Assyrians, think Attila the Hun. When you think of the Assyrians and the Ninevites, think of the Axis powers in World War II. Or maybe think Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine, all right? Think evil, think powerful, think cruel and wicked and brutal. This was their reputation. And because of this, they were hated and feared. And their wickedness was not only known to the surrounding nations, their wickedness was also known to the Lord. Verse 2 gives the reason that Jonah is to go preach. He says, for their evil has come up before me. Just like the blood of Abel cried out from the ground in Genesis chapter 4, God's justice was aroused by their atrocities. And God was about to respond. These words, their evil has come up before me, carries the echo of ancient disasters. God's done things like this before. God saw the wickedness of the earth in Noah's day, and he sent a flood. In Genesis chapter 18, God told Abraham, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is very great. And then God sent utter devastation upon those two cities. So Jonah's message to cry out against them because their evil had come up before the Lord, that message was one of impending doom, that God is just and he would not tolerate their sin any longer. So God says, arise, go, and preach. So Jonah has orders, and he's to perform this duty immediately. Now, you would expect that the very next verse would tell us that Jonah arose and he went and he preached, as we typically see in the Old Testament when God commissions a prophet. But the shocking plot twist comes in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, that's the opposite direction of Nineveh, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So think about this. I know this story may be familiar for some of you, but I want you to really think about this. God speaks back in the book of Genesis, and the universe leaps into existence. God speaks, and things that did not even exist obey him, and they start existing. God speaks in the book of Exodus, and the Red Sea parts. God speaks in the book of Joshua, and the sun itself stands still in the sky, momentarily suspending the normal laws of gravity and and the rotation of the heavenly bodies. God speaks today. And atoms and asteroids obey. But God speaks to Jonah, and he rebels. That should shock us. That should strike us as contrary to what should happen. Jonah does arise, like God said in verse 3. But instead of heading northeast to Nineveh, he heads southwest to Joppa, which was a port city. And even though he's a Hebrew, and usually they didn't have anything to do with the ocean and the sea. To them, it was unknown. It was a place of darkness and 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 uncertainty, but Jonah says, I'm going to take my chances, and he boards a ship, and he books a trip to the farthest outpost on the map, to Tarshish. That's the farthest place that he could go, to Tarshish, instead of going to Nineveh. There's a very simple word for this turn of events. It's a word we use with our children, but it's a word that applies to all of us at times. It's the word disobedience. This is disobedience, plain and simple. Willful disobedience, like what we see here in Jonah, is a rejecting of God's word and a rejecting of God's will. And when you reject God's word, and when you reject God's will, that means you are rejecting God himself. That's what disobedience is. 
And this is what Jonah is doing, and it should shock us. One of Jonah's fellow prophets, a man named Amos, wrote this in Amos 3.8. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Well, Amos, the answer is Jonah. Jonah will not fear, and Jonah will not prophesy. Jeremiah wrote this in his book, his book of prophecy. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Well, Jeremiah couldn't hold it in, but Jonah could. There was something burning in his heart, but it wasn't the word of God. And it prompts us to ask the question, so what was burning in Jonah's heart? What were his motives and his reasons for not obeying God? Well, the text doesn't tell us yet. His motive isn't stated here. His purpose isn't stated. So we'll have to come back in a couple weeks when we're in chapter 4 because then we'll get there. I don't want to give away the punchline just yet. But we see that Jonah's intention is to get as far away as he can from the presence of the Lord. It says this phrase two times in verse 3. The presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah was a good Hebrew, or at least was before this. He would have grown up singing the Psalms. He would have known Psalm 139 probably by heart, having sung it many times. Psalm 139 verse 7 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I think Jonah knows that he can't fully escape from God. But what he can do is try to get as far away as he can from the place where God's activity is focused. And I think that's what this means when it says that he fled away from the presence of the Lord. He was aiming to get away from the temple in Jerusalem, where God's glory dwells. He was aiming to get away from the promised land, the place where God was at work among his people. He was trying to get as far as he could away from Tarshish, or from Nineveh, rather. Getting away from Nineveh to Tarshish. Because Nineveh was apparently where God wanted his word to be proclaimed, where God wanted to do something, where he knew God was going to be at work. He wants to be as far away as he can from there. You know, it's really our nature, isn't it, to flee the light because it exposes the darkness in our hearts. And it's a futile exercise. We can't get away from God. It doesn't stop us from trying sometimes. But it's a futile exercise. Jonah runs from God. That's what we see in verses 1 through 3. But is he successful in escaping the will of God? Well, no. Not even close. So we have the prophet who runs. But in verse 4 through 6, we see the God who responds. In verse 4, it says, the Lord, it says, but the Lord, (laughs) despite Jonah's efforts, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. When Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish." God's response to Jonah's disobedience is both swift 
and powerful. I love how the text describes it so vividly. It says the Lord hurled a storm. It's not just that God sent a storm or God made a storm or God brought a storm. God hurled the storm. This is the same word that's used to describe what King Saul did when he launched his spear at a young man named David, trying to pin him to the wall. It has velocity and power behind it. God hurls this storm onto the sea. Even the word order of this sentence highlights the fact that God is the one acting here. This is not a natural storm. This is not just a coincidence. This is a tool designed and deployed by the sovereign and powerful maker of heaven and earth. That's what Jonah's gotten himself into in this contest of wills between him and God. Psalm 135 verse 5 says, For I know that the Lord is great. And that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This is no big deal for God to hurl a storm. It's easy for him. He can do whatever he pleases, at any moment he pleases. And in this moment... He pleases to send a storm. And the storm is a big problem for the boat and everyone on it. This storm hits hard. It's described as a great wind, as a mighty tempest, and that it threatens to break the boat in pieces. It's not just that the boat is in danger of sinking. That would be bad enough. Literally, the boat seems like it's about to rip apart. The power of the storm shows us that disobedience, when you and I disobey the clearly revealed will and word of God, We're not just resisting his will. We're also pitting ourselves against his power. God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And to disobey him is not just morally wrong. It is a foolish contest of power. Jonah tries to run away and God says, not so fast. But the storm does more than just express God's displeasure. I think if we read carefully here, It shows us something pretty amazing. The storm also displays his patience. It displays God's patience with Jonah. Lest you think God is a tyrant, that God is just losing his temper and sort of like knee-jerk reaction, lashing out. Consider that God had other prophets. He didn't need Jonah. Even in Jonah's day, there were other men who prophesied faithfully for God. But God wants to get Jonah's attention. He's not okay with Jonah's disobedience. He wants to pursue this man, not just so that he can use him to do something. God wants to do something in Jonah. So he's trying to get Jonah's attention. He's patiently pursuing his rebellious prophet to discipline him, to reach him and turn him from his unbelief and soften his hard heart. Well, Jonah's not the only one on board who's being affected by this storm. The crew at first seems to be the unfortunate victims of of what's happening here. They're just on the wrong ship at the wrong time. And these sailors are not rookies. They recognize that this is not an ordinary storm. You can see this in their response. They're, They're crying out to their various gods. They put two and two together and realize that some divine power is obviously angry. And they're bearing the brunt of someone's wrath. And so they cry out to their various gods. Fear here is a key theme in this story. So pay attention to to all the words you see in this story that refer to fear. We see fear here in the mariners in verse 5. They were afraid, and so they cry out to their God. 
But they're not just throwing up SOS prayers to heaven. They're also throwing cargo overboard. They're doing anything they can to lighten the ship and try to spare their lives. This would have been a major sacrifice for them. Think about it. This was a complete loss of their financial investment. It would have meant that they were big time in the hole financially in terms of their business. But they knew it was either lose their profit margin or lose their lives. And so they're chucking stuff over the edge and into the water. And where is Jonah during all this chaos? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. And you might step back for a moment and go, how and why? His disobedience already surprised us. But now he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. What's going on here? I think it's interesting the parallels to the New Testament story of Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, also in a violent and dangerous storm. The disciples are stuck out there and they're afraid they're going to die, but Jesus is asleep in the boat. But this story is very different than that story. Jesus was asleep because he knew he had power over the storm and he planned to calm the sea when the time came. So Jesus is completely at peace and that's why he can be asleep in the middle of the storm. But Jonah is not sleeping because he's at peace. Just the opposite. Jonah is desperately trying to get some peace. Maybe you can relate. Maybe some of you, when stress mounts and when everything in life is going wrong, all you want to do is go to sleep. To drown out the noise. To shut off and pull the the power plug for just a little bit. To escape from all the pressures and all the problems and all the things that are bearing down on you. I think that's what Jonah's doing here. Consider he's in the very act of rebelling against God. And he's trying to silence his conscience. He's trying to plug his ears lest God talk to him again. He's trying to drown out all the noise of this storm that he knows is God trying to get his attention. So his sin makes him want to escape all of that. So... He just powers off, shuts down, and it shows that he's totally indifferent to those around him. Sin always does that, by the way. It makes us indifferent to how our sin affects other people. But then the captain comes and shakes him awake in verse 6. He comes and says, what do you mean, you sleeper? The idea here is, what's your problem? How in the world can you be sleeping right now? What are you doing? Don't you realize what's going on? And then, this is great, notice the captain's words, arise call out to your God. The captain here unknowingly rubs the divine command right in Jonah's face. This is an unmistakable echo of the divine summons he received back in verse 2. God said, arise, go, call out. Now the captain shakes Jonah awake and says, arise and call out, not to the Ninevites, but to God. The captain has no idea that what he's saying was probably a painful reminder for Jonah. But God knows, and he's just as sovereign over the captain's words as he is over the storm. So Jonah's trying to escape all this turmoil. He's trying to be oblivious to everything, and then he gets this rebuke from a pagan sailor. He's trying to run from God, but he can't escape God's words. Even the captain's shaking him and and talking to him reminds him about the duties that he's shirking. You know, God is the last person that Jonah wants to talk to right in this moment. The captain's telling him to pray. But Jonah does reluctantly join them on deck. So you have the prophet who runs, the God who responds. And then in verses 7 through 16, we see an interesting development with the sailors. The sailors come to revere God. Look with me in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. 
Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. The sailors are desperate to figure out what's going on. This is a life and death moment for them. So they cast lots. It's an ancient practice that sought to determine the will of God, something like drawing straws or rolling dice or something like that. And the lot falls to Jonah. So they bombard him with this barrage of questions. You can almost imagine the rain is is slamming into them sideways as they're there on the deck. The waves are are slamming into into the ship as well. They're getting hammered by these breakers. The wind is straining the ropes and the mast almost to the breaking point. You can hear the threads snapping and the timbers creaking. And they are interrogating Jonah, this you know, these rapid-fire machine gun questions. Why is this happening? What are you doing on this boat anyway? Where are you from? What's your country? What people are you from? Because these things would have given them a clue as to what deity might be involved. They could just figure out where he was from. They might know what god he worshipped, and then they could figure out what problem was going on. So the tension here is high. And Jonah, for the first time in this book, speaks. And look at his confession in verse 9. I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He says, I am a Hebrew, telling them that he's a member of the covenant people, the nation Israel. And that he fears the Lord. This is the personal name of God, Yahweh, the God of the Exodus, who brought them out of slavery in Egypt. The God of the conquest, who drove out the Canaanites and gave them that land. And Israel's neighbors, they knew the stories. They had heard about the plagues. They had heard about Pharaoh's army getting crushed in the Red Sea. They had heard about the walls of Jericho falling down. They had heard about the sun standing still in the sky. So the reputation of Jonah's God preceded him. And these Gentile sailors, they worshipped many gods. But Jonah tells them that he worships the one true God. Not the God who's limited to one geographical area. No, he's the God who's the maker of heaven and earth. He's no provincial deity. He made it all, and he rules it all. He is the Lord, the great I am, the self-existent, self-sufficient God. And upon hearing this, notice the reaction of Jonah's shipmates. It says, they are exceedingly afraid. So they were afraid earlier because of the storm. We saw that in verse 5. But now, in verse 10, it says, they were exceedingly afraid. In Hebrew, there's actually two words back-to-back here that both have the same root, the word for fear. They were fearfully afraid. They're doubly afraid, twice as afraid as they were before when they thought they were going to die out in the middle of the ocean. The irony here is intentional. I don't know if you've seen it. Jonah professes, he claims to fear God, but he's disobeying him. The sailors actually fear God. (laughs) Despite Jonah's confession, his willful disobedience shows an absence of the fear of God. And these sailors, who are idol worshipers, see this, and they rebuke him. They say, what are you doing? Are you insane? Why are you running from God? You can see their rebuke to him in verse 10. What is this that you have done? Are you 
crazy to run away from this God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. We really should pause here and take inventory of our own hearts because Jonah's theology on paper was perfect. His doctrine was impeccable. He knows who God is, but his confession is hypocritical. He claims to fear God, but he does not obey him. Maybe that describes some of you. Someone were to ask you your religious convictions, you say, oh, I believe in, in Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross and rose again. I believe in God who made the heaven and earth. I'm a Christian. But then perhaps your life is lived completely on a different path. It's not in line with the will and the word of the God that you claim to worship. You know, we can have right theology and live a disobedient life that makes our profession empty and hollow. Something is wrong with this picture that Jonah would claim to fear God, but he would disobey him. Correct knowledge of God is no substitute for submission to God. Jonah's confession here truly exposes the delusion of disobedience. That we can claim to know and fear God. That we can claim to be followers of Jesus and then live in such a way that contradicts that claim. This, my friends, is hypocrisy. Jonah needed this rebuke from these pagan sailors. He needed cold water thrown in his face. And he was getting plenty of it right in this moment. Because he thinks he can run from God. He thinks he can escape God's presence. He thinks he can drown out the noise. He thinks that he fears God. But he's wrong on all accounts. And when you and I disobey God, we are just as delusional. Just as foolish. But as bad as Jonah looks right now, it actually gets worse. Believe it or not. He's been a disobedient prophet. Now we see him to be a delusional prophet. But it gets worse as he proves himself to be a defiant prophet. Look in verse 11. They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may, be quiet, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He says, Listen, guys. I know how you, can how you can save your lives. You will be spared if you throw me overboard. God has hurled the storm at them. They've hurled the cargo overboard, but they must now hurl him into the sea. And you might at first think, well, maybe this is an example of humility. Maybe he's being willing here to accept his punishment, say, sorry, guys, it's my fault. I deserve it, and I'll sacrifice my life to save yours. Almost something that could even point us to Jesus, someone who dies so that others could be spared. You might think that, but I think that it's actually the opposite. This is Jonah's ultimate act of defiance against God. And again here, we see a, a contrast, an ironic one between him and the sailors. Their fear, the fear they have for God, has produced in them a compliant will. Tell us what to do. We're willing to do whatever we need to do. They're ready and willing to obey whatever God wants them to do. But Jonah, his heart is still hard. And even now, even at this moment, he is resolved not to do God's will. It's interesting, there's, that, there's another option here. Jonah could have said, if you turn the ship around and head back the way we came from, I'll go to Nineveh. That's what God really wants. He wants my obedience, and your life will be spared. But he never mentions that. 
the ugly truth here is that Jonah would rather die than obey God. That is the epitome of a hard heart, of defiance against the will of God. God, I would rather die than do what you are telling me to do. It's ugly, but I think that's what's going on in Jonah's heart. Well, the crew is reluctant to do this. Verse 13 says, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord. They're no longer praying to their pagan deities. Now they're praying to the God of the storm. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Again, we find so much irony. Jonah has endangered their lives, and he's running away from Nineveh. He is very okay with the Ninevites perishing, a whole city dying. But these pagan, idolatrous um, sailors are worried about this one man dying. They're really reluctant to throw him overboard. They don't want to see him die. But eventually they do give in as a last resort. And their prayer here is truly amazing. It shows a value for human life. They don't want Jonah to perish. A fear of God's justice. They know that God holds men accountable for sin. And they acknowledge God's absolute sovereignty. They say, you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. But they do reach the point where they either have to throw him in or go down with the ship. So they do hurl him. It's the fourth time we've seen this word. Overboard. And when they do, the storm instantly stops. And this calm, the, the, the storm ceasing, rather than relieving their fear, you would think that they would go, that's over, I'm glad, we made it. Can't believe Jonah put us in that kind of situation. Instead of relieving their fear, the calming of the storm increases their fear. Then the men, verse 16, feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Their fear has increased, but no longer is it the fear of terror. The fear that they're going to die. Now this fear has has blossomed into a reverence and awe that the God of the storm is powerful and just and merciful. The Lord who made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them. And they bow the knee in worship To this God, they're now ignoring their their pagan gods. And they make vows of obedience. And and these vows are amazing. This is not the foxhole bargaining chip. God, if you save our lives, then we'll do this thing for you. God's already spared them. And because of that, they're so grateful and so convinced of God's power and goodness and worth that they say, Lord, we promise that we will worship you from now on. And we will obey you from now on. And ultimately... This is what God is after, isn't he? He's after worship and obedience. It shows us something pretty amazing. In this conflict of wills, Jonah's will versus God's will, we see that God's sovereignty is displayed once again in this final scene of worship. God's sovereignty, just as much as in the storm, is seen in the worship of these Gentiles. Even through the disobedience of a prophet, God's purposes of calling out worshipers from among the nations is being accomplished. 
God's sovereignty once again on display. Chapter 1 shows us the conflict of wills between God and Jonah. And this story, as fascinating and intriguing as it is, exciting as it can be, it's meant to challenge our hearts. I want to leave you this morning as we, as we wrap up with three exhortations, three things that we need to consider and, and perhaps respond to in obedience. First is this, don't reject God's word, submit to it. Very simple. But that's a truth we cannot ignore in this text. Don't reject God's word, submit to it. Let me ask, are there clear commands from scripture that you are ignoring or rejecting? Because you need to understand this morning that disobedience is resisting God himself. And you don't want to be in that kind of contest. You always lose. God is undefeated. Do not resist his will. Do not disobey his word. To do so, to resist his will, to resist his power, it is delusional. It is spiritually insane. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To not fear him and reject him is nothing short of foolishness and spiritual insanity. We must submit our wills to his. We must obey his word. We must be convinced and submitted to the fact that he knows better than we do. And it is his place to command and instruct. And it is our place to submit and obey. It's very simple. This is not legalism. This is the expression of the fear of God. It is faith. It is worship. And it's what should mark those who claim to believe in God. I love what Sinclair Ferguson writes on this. He says, no past privilege, nor all past privileges together, no past obedience, nor fruitfulness in service can ever substitute for present obedience to the word of God. It's a good challenge for us. Some of the older saints in the room might be nodding along this morning saying, yeah, some of you young people need to make sure that Jesus is in the driver's seat. But God wants to speak to you this morning and say, listen, present obedience is what God desires from you. And to the young people in the room, your life is not your own. If you are a follower of Christ, you belong to him. He created you and he redeemed you. So twice over, we belong to Christ. And our call is to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Obedience is inseparable from the Christian life. So don't reject God's word. Submit to it. Secondly, don't run from God's presence. Pursue it. Don't run from God's presence, pursue it. John 3.20, Jesus says this, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Spiritual reality is that there is a highway connected between man and God, and there's two lanes going opposite directions. You're either running from him or you're running to him. Which lane are you in? Are you running away from the presence of the Lord? Are you avoiding his authority in your life and plugging your ears because you don't want to hear him tell you that you have to do something you don't want to do or that you have to stop doing something that you would want to do? Or are you in that lane that is pursuing the presence of God, that is going towards him, that is seeking God and submitting yourself to him? Don't run from God. Run to him. If you are running from God, it says something about you, according to John's gospel, that you hate the light because you don't want your works to be exposed. 
If we can be honest, that's the reason some people don't want to get very involved in the church, because then people might get to know them. And in getting to know them, they might actually see that parts of their lives, their life doesn't line up with Scripture, and that those people in the church might even say something about it. So we prefer to stay anonymous and keep our distance, keep this facade so that people don't know who we really are. We don't like to come to church because we don't want to hear the preaching of the word. It's going to bring conviction. I'm going to be reminded that I am not walking in submission to Christ. And so we want to stay away. If you're running, it says something about you. But here's the reality. You can't run and you can't hide. Jeremiah 23 says, am I, this is God speaking, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? You cannot run from God. And even if you succeed in plugging your ears and closing your eyes and you ignore him, you will one day die and stand face to face before the judge of all the earth and you will not be able to run any longer. Don't run from him. We must instead run to him. If you have sin and guilt and shame and conviction in your heart, don't bury it. Don't try to distract yourself from it. Don't try to numb yourself to those feelings. Instead, bring those things to the cross. Confess those sins and lay them at the feet of Jesus and allow his blood to cleanse you and and allow him to forgive you and submit your will to his. Embrace him as your Lord. He will cast your sins as far as east is from west. And he will draw you near to him to experience a joy and a peace that can be found nowhere else. A life of running from God will not experience joy or peace. But when we deal with our sin, we confess it, and we repent, and we turn away from that sin and come to Christ. He gives us a joy and a peace that cannot be found, that cannot be bought, that cannot be built anywhere or any, in any other way in this life. So don't run from him, run to him. For those who trust in Christ, the presence of God is the greatest blessing to be enjoyed, the greatest joy to be pursued. But it requires repentance that we turn from our sin and come to Christ. Third, and finally, don't resist God's patient but painful pursuit. Respond to it. Don't resist God's patient but painful pursuit pursuit. Let me ask you this morning, are there some storms in your life? Because maybe, maybe God wants to get your attention. We have to be careful here not to make the same wrong assumptions that Job's friends made, that every crisis must be God's punishment. That's not true. And that's not what I'm saying this morning. Please hear me clearly. Not all difficulty or pain or suffering is punishment because we're being disobedient. But there is the possibility that God has sent difficulty and adversity into your life to graciously wake you up and get your attention and draw you to himself. We must not forget the truth of Hebrews 12, that those whom God loves, he disciplines. And he chastens every son of his. If you are a son or a daughter of God who is being hypocritical, pursuing sin instead of pursuing Christ, God loves you too much to let you go your own way. He's not going to write you off and say, fine, be that way. Go to Tarshish. I'll find somebody else. No, he pursues us in his love and in his patience with us. But sometimes that feels painful. 
Sometimes it feels painful. If you are experiencing a storm, I'm not saying that that means God is punishing you. It may not. It may mean something else. But we do need to ask the question, God, is there something that you want to show me? Are you trying to get my attention? Am I walking in disobedience? Because if you are walking in disobedience, it may be that God wants to use that pain and adversity to get your attention, to wake you up so that you can be restored to him in fellowship and in relationship. God patiently pursues disobedient sinners. So rather than harden our hearts in defiance, we should rather turn and repent. That's the lesson that this story is meant to teach us. Friends, the God that we serve is a powerful sovereign. As Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And praise be to God that he is pleased to save the lost. And he is pleased to sanctify those who believe. This is who our God is. May our actions reflect our confession this morning that we fear this God as we submit our wills and our hearts to him in obedience. Let's pray together. God, as we read this story, Father, we are amazed at your power that you would speak to us and reveal your will, that you rule over the elements of your creation in powerful ways that you're able to start and stop the storm in an instant, that you're able to to change the hearts of pagan sailors from worshiping false gods to worshiping you. We're amazed at your power. We're also amazed at your grace. You desire to save people like the Ninevites, people like us, people like these Gentile sailors, and that you also desire to pursue disobedient and wayward children like Jonah. Lord, if there's some in the room this morning who don't know you, who are separated from your people because they do not believe in Christ and they have not placed their trust in you, I ask God that what they have heard this morning would awaken them to both your power and your grace. And I ask God that they would run to you, that they would fear you exceedingly, that they would tremble at your justice and be in awe at your mercy and your compassion. And I pray that they would believe, that they would worship Christ as their Lord and vow obedience, that they would take up their cross today and resolve to follow Jesus. And God, for any of your children in the room this morning who are walking in open rebellion against you, I pray that willful disobedience would be exposed. And Lord, that you would cause their hearts to tremble at the thought that they are opposing your will and your word, that they have pitted themselves against your power. Lord, awaken them from their foolishness and bring them back to yourself in repentance. Lord, I pray that you would give all of us a desire to submit to you and a willingness to obey no matter what you call us to do. I pray that we would see your presence as the greatest blessing to be pursued, not an uncomfortable reality to be avoided. Lord, work in our hearts as we read this story. Give us a clear vision of you, a better understanding of our own sinfulness, and give us an excitement at the glory that we see in these pages so that we would go and share with the world who this God is that we fear. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.